Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. Our first podcast was nearly two months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive selection of intriguing guests and plenty of free-flowing conversation. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has their own story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a movie. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing for you to consider is what you will do with it. Or to put it another way, what will you be known for? What will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with today's featured guest, Golden Harper, founder of Ultra, a footwear and apparel company based in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-P-O-I-C-A-B-O. Or check out their website, poiibogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Now let's introduce Golden. Golden Harper is the founder of Ultra, a Utah-based footwear and apparel company. He started working in his family's specialty running store at age nine. The experience allowed him to learn about a range of running injuries and how to prevent or minimize them. Throughout those early years and into the present, Golden has been a competitive runner. Between the ages of 10 and 14, he ran in five months. When he was 12, he ran the St. George Utah Marathon in two hours, 45 minutes, 34 seconds, a world's best for that age. Later, Golden graduated from Brigham University with a degree in exercise science. His studies focused on biomechanics, kinematics, running injuries, and coaching. Following college, he returned home and went back to his family's running store. He began to modify existing shoes that were sold at his store and collected data showing that customers improved their technique and had far less injuries when they wore the modified shoes compared to traditional ones. The modifications helped greatly, he determined. He showed his collective data to the big running shoe companies, but it was to no avail. The path forward was clear. Golden and his cohorts partnered with shoemaking experts, and the next thing they knew, they were a million dollars in debt. But on the way to establishing Ultra, a company that made a new kind of running shoe. Let's bring them on now, Golden Harper. Hey, Golden, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. So how's things out in Utah right now? Uh, pretty fabulous. Uh, just flew in, actually. So. You, you did? Where, where'd you fly in from? Uh, flew in from Tucson, Arizona. Tucson. It was, it was really nice down there. <laughs> Were you there out there running, or was this business? Uh, business for the, uh, we had an expo for the best running stores in America. So I'm talking to all those guys. Wow, that sounds like a great adventure. So, boy, you've got quite the resume, and you, you've beaten me. The, the only thing I ever ran from maybe was uh, my neighbor's house or, or another kid in the neighborhood. How did you do that? I mean, from the ages of 10 to 14, what motivated you to run? Did you have a, somebody running after you? Was there a dog or a bear? Like, like tell me, what made you want to run? <laughs> I chased deer, uh, but uh, they, they weren't running after me. I think it was uh, both my, my parents come from uh, sedentary families uh, for the most part. And, you know, so much that, you know, we show up to family reunions and people ask who the skinny people are. Yeah. Uh, and they both started running uh, just just a couple of years before uh, they had me, and so they were really stoked about running. Oh, so this was genetics, man. You're, you're cheating. So this was in your DNA in your code. Well, I don't think so because it, again, you look at both my parents' families, and no runners, nobody that's really an, an athlete, and nobody that you know for the most part that even looks like an athlete. I mean, frankly, my mom looks at a cheeseburger and she gains weight just looking at it. Oh boy, uh, so. that's how it is, huh? It's an interesting thing. So there, there probably are, but they, they've been hidden or buried for hundreds of years, I guess. Yeah, so somewhere uh, back in the I line. I think what it is is it's more nurture where 
uh, my parents got really excited about running right about the time they met. And then I was born and, and my next door neighbors ran and I actually grew up just thinking it's what humans did, like, because to run. everybody around. Yeah, it's just normal. So I was the kid who showed up to kindergarten and was like, hey, where do you run? <laughs> yeah, that, you expect it. Yeah, see, I have an eight-year-old, and every time I hear him run, it's, I got to go to the bathroom, or, or, or Dad, mm -hmm. Elsa has my iPad. So right. how does a 10-year-old or 14, or any child to, to be that, a marathon is kind of far, right? That, that's more than like a 1,000 feet. I mean, how far is a marathon? It's uh, 26.2 miles. That's a long way. So how do you keep your focus when you're that age? How'd you do that? Uh, so what happened, actually, is I, I wanted to because it was like the St. George marathon was, was like the biggest deal in my house every year. And so when I was nine, I really wanted to run. I asked my parents if I could run that year. I was actually eight. And, uh, they, they were like, heck no, you're eight, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's a marathon. That's insane. Like you're not doing that. But that year they gave the performance of the day trophy, which was a six foot tall trophy, uh, to the youngest runner in the race who was 12 and who, who ran a pretty good, pretty good uh, four and a half hour marathon. And I just never let them hear the end of it. You know, if you, if you would have let me run, I would have got that giant trophy. And oh, I, I, that, that, this was I, your doing, huh? You had oh, it yeah, in you. I swear to you, there's, there's <laughs> nothing crazy. cooler to a nine-year-old competitive runner than, yeah, was, than a trophy that's twice as tall as you are. Like, that's Got it. So was this, o, was this OCD or ego? Like, what was driving you? Uh, you know, I just, I, I just, it, I saw that that is what my parents did and my neighbors did. Uh, my mom and my next door neighbor were both Olympic trials qualifiers. Um, and so I saw that that's what they did. And then, and then this huge trophy, I was like, I could have that trophy, you know, that could be yours. So, yeah, that could be mine. And I just begged and begged. And finally, like my dad just got tired of hearing it and he's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Just, it's your just leave me alone. Like, he's like, you can run next year if you run rim to rim in the grand Canyon first. And if you run to the top of Mount Timpanogos and back so he first. gave you a pretty high benchmark. Did you have any nosebleeds well, on the way up? I and mean, that's pretty high. It is, it is high. How'd you do uh, that? But it, these things are harder than a marathon was his point. So he, yeah. he's basically, you know, trying to talk me out of it by, you know, and he, he thought I would attempt it and realize that it's incredibly stupid, but I kind of liked it. You enjoyed it. So, and you, so you he was forced him. to let me run. Now, so what yeah. kind of training, how do you prepare for something like that? Um, well, at that age, I just like went and had fun. I ran in the mountains. I chased deer. I, like I said, I went and did rim to rim in the grand Canyon. I, I joined the group, uh, runs that, that our running store was putting on. And, uh, you know, it, it I, I wouldn't say that, uh, it was, it felt as much like training to me as it did just to put is it was just playing. I was just up running around in the mountains, chasing things and looking at beautiful things. Looking at beautiful things. That's a, that's a great way to put it. So to, to get started in running, do you just put on a pair of sneakers? And by the way, I got to tell you, uh, the, the shoes you sent me, these things are, are like walking on a feather. These running shoes are by far the, the best I've ever had. And I've only had them for a half a day now. So, so how do I start? Do I just put on some easy, comfortable clothes and, and go run 10 miles. I mean, how do you build yourself up to do this? How do you go 26.2 miles? You know, um, as, as far as going long, you just, you have to do long runs, but you have to build up to get there. You know, I, I recommend people that want to run a marathon start a year in <clears throat> a year in advance. Like I did, um, a year in advance. So this is yeah. training. You don't just run out and you, and run 26 miles. It, it takes preparation. No. And it's, it's this thing too, where like any other sport you'd get training on how to protect yourself and how to do it. And in any other sport, you spend the majority of your time on technique and how to do the sport and how to protect yourself while doing the sport. Running is the only sport where we tell people, Oh yeah, just go run. Uh, you'll, you'll eventually get better at it. Uh, which if we're all running barefoot on natural surfaces might be true to some degree. Have you ever done that by the way? Uh, Have you ever run barefoot? Oh, absolutely. And you I, have. And, Honestly, it's the best way to start. You know, I'm, I'm a guy that barefoot. I, I started a shoe company and, and I'm here to tell you right now, the best way to start running is to start barefoot wow. uh, because, because your feet will be your limiting factor and they won't let you hurt yourself. Um, so it's kind of like and, my hands building up calluses. Your, your feet can also handle that. Yeah. And they won't let you overextend and hurt your joints and, and all that stuff. You'll, you'll learn uh, impact moderating technique. You'll learn to protect your body. You'll learn to run in a way 
that is protective. And uh, what people don't realize is, you know, running is also the only sport where we not only tell people just to do it and we don't teach them how. Uh, we also give them equipment that uh, is injurious and makes it hard to actually do it efficiently. So if you if you look at the way, you know, modern running shoes are built, you know, they have a, a tapered toe box that crowds your toes together and doesn't let your toes actually do natural impact absorption and stability wow. and push off. And they also have a heel that's twice as thick as the forefoot. And that elevated heavy heel in the back of the shoe throws the weight balance of the shoe off and makes the back half of the shoe heavier. And it's also thicker back there. So you end up, the shoe actually forces you to run in a way that your body would never run it. Now, did you, you know this at age 12? And when did you learn this, Golden? Because that, that's a lot of information. Um, you know, the shoe part uh, kind of, uh, like I said, we had a shoe store that I opened when I was nine. And I was always taught from a young age to run like I was barefoot or to run like a Kenyan. Uh, because the, the Kenyan runners are the greatest runners in the world, and they, they run much more efficiently than we do. Uh, and they all teach they – actually, they actually teach technique to each other, hmm. and they mimic, you know, whoever's best. Wow. And so uh, my nickname growing up was Kenyan Golden Harper because I was this Golden white Harper. kid, but I, but I ran like a Kenyan. You did it, huh? And, yeah. and uh, it just – it's one of those things where uh, these guys are so efficient, and, and they're – they're so good at protecting their bodies. And so from a young age, I was taught to do this, but it's always hard because it, it was really easy to do without shoes on. And it, you know, this wearing running shoes made it more difficult to do. And that's the case. You found like you got everybody. It sounded like it, you felt like it got in the way. And by the way, it sounds like you were raised by really good, decent people. I was raised by some wolves. My father always said, you run like you stole something. So if you're going to run, <laughs> you, you don't get caught. So that leads me into, uh, you broke a record. Did you know there was a record? Like, did you plan, oh, I'm going to beat this record, or did you find out afterwards? Uh, I, I found out afterwards. Uh, so that first year, my first marathon at age 10, uh, ended up being a state record, and they didn't give me that trophy. Uh, they gave it to the oldest runner that year. So mm. I just thought, like, okay, i got to be more impressive. So I came back the next year, and I ran faster. And as an 11-year-old, I ran 257, which is the fastest anyone in America has ever run a marathon for wow. that age. That's um, and they, remarkable. And they gave the trophy to somebody else. Uh, and why do you I think they did that? Uh, just went to a disabled athlete that year that had a, a pretty incredible performance. And, and, of course, they didn't know I had run a national uh, record either. I see. Uh, so I came back the next year, trained really hard, and I wasn't going after record. I, I just wanted the six-foot-tall trophy. Yeah, it was all about the trophy. And by the way, do you like trophies or do you like the kind that you hang around your neck? Like, what to you is the – like, what's a status symbol? What, what's the best? Uh, I don't really care anymore, you know. And it's funny. I joke. I never got that stupid six-foot-tall trophy that motivated me. <laughs> you never me did get it, huh? I'll, look, I, I'll I get you one. It's going to say you're tough. I know, right? I just have no idea what I do with it. Like, you know, it's like you move, and what do you do with a six foot? That's right. Now they're not so attractive anymore. Like, do I really want that? I've got a nine inch plaque from that race that hangs on my wall, and I'm like, this is great. I can actually take it with me. Yeah, that's yours. So, what is your favorite kind of running? You know, you've you've been involved in many races, mountain races, cross country events. What's your favorite kind? Like, what is what excites or ignites Golden Harper to run? Remember, you've already run in the past, so to do it again, like what is the next for you? Um, you know, competition anywhere, road, trail, cross country, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, any kind of, any kind of competition, especially I, I, I'm not a great down uphill runner, but I'm a pretty good downhill runner. Uh, and what does that mean and, to, to the people out there like myself that go downhill? We're we talking like you getting a bobsled. Like what do you mean downhill runner? I mean, like, you know, you're just running downhill, uh, and it, it requires a different, uh, feature set and maybe some different genes and, uh, you know, different, uh, uh, bigger focus on technique and, uh, a little bit of recklessness, a little bit of recklessness. Uh, and yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be a little bit crazy, uh, especially if we're talking downhill on the trail, wow. um, or, you know, cross country. So, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're asking me what excites me the most, I love all of those things. I love doing Spartan races, um, obstacle course racing, but I'd say, you know, give me a, give me a mountain race with a, with a good dose of downhill. That's, that's mountain nasty race and with, technical with and, danger. and dangerous. You like the danger. Yeah. Now, do you like the kind where you're near the edge of the cliff? Cause by the way, I am afraid of heights. So do you like getting oh, close yeah. to the side? Uh, yes. Yeah, there I, you go. You're, ran, oh man, you just acknowledge that you're an adventure seeker. I ran Picacho Peak yesterday down in Arizona, uh, last night at sunset. And, 
I was going going after the record down there, and wow. it there's a lot of ropes and chains and uh, cables that are fixed because it's incredibly steep and and you're basically hanging off the side of a cliff a good chunk of the way, and for me like it was it was it was just an adrenaline rush the whole time I was out there because at any moment I could slip and fall and and they'd have to carry me out of there on a stretcher, and something in my DNA just really likes that. You liked you know? it. It was, it was um, but, li- living, but I've also grown up doing it. So I, I know where, where my limits are. And, uh, you know, I don't generally get seriously hurt. I get, you know, my whole leg is like road rashed up right now from a fall. I took in a trail race over the weekend. Hmm. Um, I get, I get mere flesh wounds like that yeah, pretty that. often because I'm a believer that if you're not falling, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> that, that's a great uh, motto. I'm going to steal that. You're not falling. You're not, you're not trying hard enough. So, yeah, so why, I rarely get hurt badly. Yeah, so. all right. We had a, a couple weeks back, a uh, gentleman by the name of Sergeant Rudy Reyes, a Marine Recon, and I picked him up at his hotel. He had just flown in from the uh, Boston Marathon. When he came out of the hotel, he was walking on bare feet. And I said, where's your shoes, Rudy? Dude, my feet are too bad. I'm not putting on shoes. I, they need to. Yeah, so, so, so what does that mean? Like, why can't he put his shoes on? What happens to the feet after you've run 26.2 miles? Well, uh, you know, you have to keep in mind that 99% of people are wearing a shoe, both their running shoe and their everyday shoe, that deforms their foot out of the natural position that it's supposed to be in. So if you think when you're barefoot, your feet sit flat on the ground with your toes spread and relaxed. Yeah. And every time you put a shoe on, it jacks your heel up in the air. It crowds your toes together. And you don't notice this because our bodies are wonderfully adaptable. Um, but we're actually doing an American version or a modern version of Chinese foot binding. Hmm. Uh, and our feet eventually come to look like the shoes that, that we wear. And the more our feet look like the shoes we wear, the more money podiatrists make off of us. Ah. Uh, the more the more our feet hurt. And so, you know, he probably ran a marathon in a pair of shoes that had a heel that was twice as thick as the forefoot, like 99% of all running shoes. 99%. And that, that, that crowded his toes together. And so after doing 26 miles in that position, your feet are pretty shot. Not to mention they're going to get pretty beat up even if they were in their natural position. Um, and then, you know, to put on a, to go put on a shoe afterwards that again, deforms your foot out of its natural position, uh, it just puts you in a place where you're uncomfortable. That's, that's a lot of insight. You know, all the things that you've learned along the way, it sounds like some of these things have been passed down uh, because your parents are also engaged in it. So between, and this is a fact we found between your mother, father, and three sisters, your family holds nearly 20 state titles in running. Does that level Correct. of achievement have any impact on your own endeavor? Uh, probably. I, I mean, you, you've I've got a lot to it. lot to run for. They they're all they're all very talented. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We've all all been very successful, and and you know, my dad would always say, "Hey, look, you're you're probably gonna be one of the less talented people out there. The uh, less talented. So you're gonna have to be more efficient, more smart." Uh, and just, you're just going to have to outwit everybody on the course, you know, because you're probably not going to look as good as them. And you, you, you know, you probably, you know, you may or may not have as much talent as, as the better runners out there. And so So, now quitting is, is quitting ever an option for you? Uh, we don't say can't where I'm from. So, uh, probably not, uh, unless it's the smart thing to do, I guess. But if it's something you signed up for and, and you committed to do, uh, you know, you're not going to quit. I mean, how do you do that when you're, you're mile marker 15 and you know, I got a long way to go. How do you push through that? Uh, yeah, that happened to me this last year. I, I ran my first marathon since I was a kid a couple of years ago, um, at St. George again. And I just had a joy ride of a race and had a great time. And I came back last year, better prepared, uh, ready to be a lot faster. And I came back and I got the mile about halfway through the race, about mile 13. And I was hurting more at mile 13 than I was the previous year with a mile to go. Wow. And I still had half the race left. And, uh, you just kind of, you kind of dig deep and hold on and it's probably trained, you know, uh, you get used to doing this. Uh, but, uh, there's definitely an element of, you know, there's probably some prayer involved too. Yeah. There's gotta be a few of those Uh, you're throwing upon. Help me through this. This will be the last time that I torture my feet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and really it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just like, okay, we're going to gut it out. And, and frankly, this happened to me last night on the peak. I was, 
I was uh, I was a half mile in and and I was just in a I was really hurting and I was already behind pace. You know, I, I wasn't as fast as I needed to be. And I was like, OK, I'm just going to hang on for one mile and we'll just see what happens and and we'll take it from there and so you just kind of take it piece by piece one bit at a time and you know anybody who's been through really hard things in their life um you know especially like addiction or anything like that knows that like you kind of have to take things one day at a time sometimes one one hour at a time and it's kind of the same thing it's it's just get to that next mile and then we'll reevaluate yeah okay now get to the next mile and you know a mile is you know for some of us, it's five minutes and change, and for other people, it's it's fifteen minutes and change. But it's still do, not. you watch me run, don't you? That, that's my my speed is all right. I'll get I'll get there, but it's not going to be five minutes. It might take a few breaks, uh, water breaks. See, might be a little yeah. distracted along the way too. But but see, that's the admirable thing, you know. I, I know a lot of people that can run five minute miles that quit, you know. And I'm hmm. I I admire the people that run fifteen minute miles that get it done. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. So when you're when you're out there, you know, the thing that you and I were talking about earlier before you went on uh, is that we all desire something. The one thing that everybody wants in this world, but most people really don't know how to explain it. It's I call it their peace. They want their peace back when you're yeah. out when you're out there. Do you find your peace? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, running is kind of it's it's one of uh, a a few things that I do. I mean, my faith is a big part of this too, but, uh, you know, running is one of the other places that I do find my peace because, you know, it's just, it's just me and, and what's been created out there and the beauty that's around me. And, uh, you know, sometimes I run socially, but most of the time it's just me. It's It's me out on the mountain, uh, me just kind of taking in nature and, uh, you have to live in the moment, especially trail running where you're planning every step. It doesn't allow you to be thinking about, you know, the stress in your life or what's wrong in your life or the burdens that you have. Because if you're sitting there thinking about that, you might not be thinking about that rock you're trying to dodge in front of you and hmm. then you end up flat on your Great face. Perspective. And so uh, for me, it, I do find that because it, it kind of forces it, frankly. And it probably sounds like an advertisement for for getting out and running on the trail or, you know, getting off the road. And, and frankly, from a peace perspective, it is not that you can't find that on the road. Um, but it's definitely forced a little bit more on the trail. Well, I think that cause most people, they, they find things to entertain them. I'm going to sit back and watch Netflix or I'm going to watch an HBO miniseries. And I find that the people that are out running, there's an energy about them. And I always believe when you're near them, it's, well, that energy can become very contagious. And there's something that happens, yeah. you, you almost get back in sync with where you were supposed to be. So when you're out there and you, you've experienced this enlightenment and you come back off the mountain, how do you readjust? Um, you know, I, I think it's, at least for me, it sticks with me. Um, I don't know that there's a, a big readjust for me. I feel like uh, my day is better because of my run. Uh, and, and keeping in mind that I typically run in the evening, uh, not always, but, um, so, you know, I come back and, and, you know, I'm tired of course, mm-hmm. but I have that, uh, you know, I've kind of, it's, it's kind of my reset button. That's how, bit, how, you know? how far will you run when you run at night? Uh, you know, most days I only go three to five miles. No, only three uh, to five miles. That's, that's not, I only run, you know, three to four days a week. Typically okay. I'm busy, uh, you know, and so. Uh, not not going out like a lot of my peers and, you know, slamming 10 to 20 miles every day. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't think it's the mileage that matters. I don't think it's the speed that matters. I think it's the fact that you got out there and, and took that time for yourself and, and had that time to be in the moment. Yeah. And, and so when you were uh, when you were away at college and you returned, your family was beginning to videotape customers in slow motion in order to analyze their running form. Right. Tell me. Was was this something that when you left they were working on, or when you came back you went really? This is this is pretty wild. Well, there was no slow motion video available to people that weren't rich at the time. So, um, but running technique had always been huge. My dad has no cartilage in his knee. He he ran a two twenty two marathon at age thirty seven. Won the St. George marathon. Good for him. Um, I'm 35, by the way, Golden. sort of world record. Okay, I'm, I'm 36. Oh, we're, we're right there. So. All right, we're right, we're right there. Um, and so, you know, if he didn't run with perfect, quote-unquote, Kenyan running technique, he didn't run at all. 
and because he had, you know, he's again, bone on bone, his knee was just destroyed from a football accident. And, um, you know, so I grew up just being, you know, taught like, no, you have to run in this way. And so when we opened a running store, a big thing that set our store apart and made it different than any store out there is we actually would teach our customers how to run efficiently. Wow. And so when I, when I came back to college, all of a sudden we got these, these cameras came out that let us see slow motion really clearly. And so that allowed us to show our customers what we were talking about. And so we start filming our customers and breaking down their running technique. And lo and behold, we find out that the shoes we're selling them are, are really fighting what we're trying to teach them to do. Hmm. And, and, and so now where we are today in, in terms of technology and advancement, it, you started off with that. What are you doing now? Uh, from, from, from that perspective or, or just, uh, with, with ultra as a shoe company, Yeah, ultra as a shoe company. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it kind of pick up right there. Uh, when we realized that, you know, we'd watch people run barefoot or in these like five finger foot glove things or in racing shoes, they ran in a way that was naturally protective to their body. But as soon as we put on a pair of our best selling shoes on these people and, and watched them run in slow motion, we could see that the shoes made them run differently. The shoes made them run worse. The shoes made them run with higher impact. Uh, they ran like they were still sitting at a keyboard. Their heel would hit out way out in front of their knee. Um, and it was just, it was a bad deal. And my dad was like, Hey, we teach everybody that comes in this door a lesson on how to run better. And then we sell them a pair of shoes that undoes everything we teach them every time they go out there. It's, it's not fair. Yeah. And so I got looking at the way shoes are built. Uh, and you know, I had already studied a lot of this stuff in college, but as I really broke it down, I was like, why are the shoes changing the way people run? And it, it really came down to, from an in, from a technique standpoint, that the shoes are a lot heavier in the back and the shoes are a lot thicker in the back. So if somebody's foot comes out in front of their body, the heavy heel causes their toes to pop up in the air and their heel to be dropped down. And then because the shoe is thicker, that thick heel catches the ground two or three inches earlier than it otherwise would without a shoe on. And I just thought to myself, like, well, we can't can't do barefoot i'm training for a rocky 50 mile race in the mountains mm -hmm. so that's not an option how yeah, do we do that. Mar how do we marry the the biomechanics of barefoot with the protection of a traditional shoe and you know my thought process is how do we get the cushioning balanced front to back so that the it's the same thickness front to back and it's the same weight front to back so that the shoe really doesn't influence or change what your body's trying to do uh, because every running shoe is changing the way people are running. And so that's when I popped a pair of shoes in the toaster oven, uh, you know, heated them up 275 degrees, waited till the glue bubbled, grab a pair of pliers, rip the rubber off, put the foam out, put some level, flat, weight-balanced foam in there, and glued the rubber back on and went for a run. And for the first time in my life, I'm wearing a cushy, supportive shoe. Yeah, that's how you, but that's I feel how you like made your shoe. it's not fighting my body. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you, you put it in the microwave and you nuked it. Um, so this this process of, of today, obviously, it's not designed the same way. Your family was involved when you were back working with them. Are they now part of this this business that you've created? Uh, not officially because they, they still own a running store, and we thought it would be a conflict of interest. All right. Uh, so I never So I you never want to. You're saying, I can't yet, yeah, but I really want to. Yeah, yeah. So – you know, my dad obviously consults and, yeah. and tells me stuff all the time. He's got to be so uh, proud of you. And look what you've done. You, you've you designed a oh, shoe that here I am, Dustin Plano in Baltimore, Maryland. I am wearing something that started in your head. Like, yeah. How does, uh, as from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you went from idea to execution. Talk me through that process because a lot of people go, well, you realize there's a lot of competition. I mean, Nike's doing this thing. They've been doing it for a while. Adidas, like, yep. everything was stacked against you. You know that. I know that. Everyone else knows. And yet you still had this raw, this grit, this resilience that said, then I will build it myself. So tell me about building this. There's been many ups and many downs. And, and talk us through that process. When you started a company, you have a great idea. What do you do next with it? Yeah, I mean you're right. I mean, we went to hell and back 50 times. Um, I mean it was it was incredibly difficult starting. You know, starting the company was, uh, you know, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And um, you know, it just came down to like it, it was. It, it, we got to a point where at the running store we felt like we didn't have anything to sell that we believed in. 
And that's when you get compelled to make something. That's a problem uh, for you. Yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Where you feel like you're kind of betraying your customers. Uh, and so actually initially we, so we built these prototypes and we had a shoemaker down the road, modify all of our best-selling shoes. We would expand the toe box, skip the laces in the bottom half to get the toes, um, just like hanging out in space. And then we would, we would modify these shoes to be level and weight balance front to back. And we somehow a customer got a hold of the first pair and it just kind of spiraled out of control where he told a friend who told a friend who told a friend because we told him not to tell people. And you know what happens when you tell people not to tell people things. Um, And so next thing we knew, uh, you know, a year had gone by and we'd sold about a thousand pair of these modified what at the time we were calling zero drop shoes, what we now call balanced cushioning shoes. Um, But basically um, and we we actually didn't know if they were going to help customers or hurt them. It was just an attempt. So we actually sent out all these surveys and we paid customers $10 to come back after six weeks and tell us what happened. Uh, and we found that there were five major running injuries that just got so much better. Uh, and they were, you know, plantar fascia issues, what we used to call plantar fasciitis, what we now call plantar fasciosis, shin splints, runner's knee, IT band, and low back issues. Oh, man, it sounds like everything uh, I have. And, uh, yeah, so... And we just had like an incredible success rate with these these five areas. And we had all this data that we'd been collecting for a year on these thousand runners that had bought these shoes. And so we took them to the shoe companies who we had good relationships with. My dad was working for Nike when I was born. He was a sales manager for Saucony most of my childhood. And we had really good relationships with most of the other shoe companies, too. So we took the data of the shoe companies and said, hey, if you'll make shoes this way so that the cushioning is weight balanced front to back and level and the toe box is actually shaped like a foot instead of a torpedo. Um, all these injuries get better. We will buy thousands of pairs and give you tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Will you please make them? Hmm. And unfortunately all the shoe companies turned it down and they're like, well, yeah, if we did that, we'd kind of have to admit everything we've been making for the last few decades is like not right. And that, that um, would be quite the, you want to talk about a, a conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which I didn't really understand at the time. And I was pretty, pretty pissed about, you know, uh, and my cousin Jeremy got a hold of a pair and he hadn't run in about five years cause he had these knee problems and I, I got him out for a run and all of a sudden, you know, he, he adopted more protective running technique and with the shoes, he's able to run again. And he comes back to me and he asked me for a real pair. And I was like, what do you mean a real pair? He's like, well, you know, one like not made by you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I'm like, they don't exist. He's like, he's like, look, humans are built with our feet flat on the ground with our toes spread and relaxed. Of course, there's shoes that leave your foot in their natural position. And I was like, not with any cushioning, not for running, not for athletics. And he's like, I don't believe you. I'll go find them. And of course, he comes back about two weeks later and he's like, they don't, they don't exist. And I was like, yeah, I know. I managed they did right recon door. and they did not yeah, exist. Yeah. He's like, well, we have to build them. I'm like, I know. I've known this for like a year and a half now. You finally but see like, what I've been seeing. Yeah, it's like, but like this, we have the same seven popular running shoe brands since the beginning of time. Starting a running shoe company is the quickest way to go homeless. Mm. Like it's, it's like instant, you know, career suicide. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's time for like, let's just, let's just end it now. Let's go into the shoe business. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, luckily he found uh, he found these shoemaking superstars that had left Nike and Adidas and they called up and I thought I was getting sued when they first called for hacking up their shoes and selling them. And they're no, we, we actually just left and we've been wanting to sh- build shoes this way for 15 years. We've known for 15 years we've had research that shows shoes are supposed to be built the way you're doing them right now. Uh, we know how to build shoes you have a marketing story with your running store and you're, you know, you're running, uh, competitiveness, let's get together. And it's kind of, you know, I, I, you know, it just kind of went from there. And next thing we were, we knew we're rolling and we're in all kinds of debt and, uh, it, it got real crazy real quick. Wow. So on the debt side, you know, you're running this business and while you believe we're, we're on our way, you're taking on debt, how did you push through that? I mean, that is for most people, eh, I guess we tried and it wasn't for lack of being a good idea. It was we ran out of money. How did you continue? Um, well, Jeremy is like one tough, one tough guy. And then we, uh, we brought in my best friend, uh, Brian Beckstead, 
and he is about as tough as they come too. And between the three of us, we're about the hard, most hard-headed, like, you know, just never say die. The type three of amigos. That's what I call you. The three yeah. amigos. And uh, you know, I I was doing some long distance, like ultra marathon running at the time, a little bit. And and Brian was actually one of the first kids I ever knew to run ultra marathons, like hundred mile races. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you get a 20, you know, a kid in his twenties that, that runs hundred mile races. Hmm. It, these people tend to not give up very easy, you know, and <laughs> that's, no, I guess not. That's really kind of what it was for us is like all three of us were, just kind of never say die personalities. And, and we were literally on the edge of extinction, you know, probably a couple dozen times where it's like, if this funding doesn't come through tomorrow, you know, we're shutting the doors down. Like we can't survive. Um, you know, they're, they're going to foreclose on us or whatever. And, you know, we, we all went without paychecks for, you know, a year and a half. Um, so everybody's in debt, you know, Brian's borrowing 50 grand from his, his parents and, you know, Jeremy's putting everything he has into it and, and I'm doing the same. So I hope you guys have all paid um, them back since then. I mean, you're, you're a successful company now. Yeah. 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 We got them all paid back. <laughs> That's all good. good. <laughs> yeah. So your, your side studies in exercise science at college, um, what made you choose that? Uh, working at my running store as a kid, um, just realizing after, you know, almost 10 years of working at the store that most of the, most all of the information we had for preventing customers injuries was tied into a big marketing, you know, propaganda machine. And that it, frankly, it didn't work. You know, there's a lot of things that people believe about shoes that are just wrong, you know, and you know why they learned that, right? There was a generation that came before you and I that watched a show called, uh, married with children and Al Bundy, mm -hmm. he worked in a shoe store. So that's most people know there's no shoes from people like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everything else they learned from from Nike and Adidas mm -hmm. and Asics and Brooks, you know, That's right. And, you know, it's stuff like like people think that cushioning will save their joints. And literally every study in history shows that the more cushioning there is in your shoe, the harder it is on your joints. Um, it cushioning only protects where cushioning is. So, you know, boxing gloves protect boxers hands, but they all retire with shoulder injuries. You know, force doesn't magically disappear. It has to go somewhere. Uh, so. Uh, this kind of stuff and that, you know, there's, there's, you know, almost all chronic foot conditions are caused by shoes caused by um, shoes. The fact, yes. Like, you know, you go look at the natural world, the billion people on planet earth that don't wear modern footwear, they have no chronic foot conditions, none, like no bunions, no neuromas, no nothing, you know? So you're saying that like, we're actually sabotaging our own, our own feet. Yeah. We spend $26 billion in America every year on shoes and then we spend an additional $28 billion on pads, surgeries, and treatments to get rid of the foot problems caused by the shoes we spent $26 billion on in the first place. Hmm. So it, Ridiculous. It, there's a tremendous amount of money that seems to never end a flow. And uh, so as you're now looking to the future of the problems that exist, what are the problems you're looking to solve right now? I mean, you've solved quite a few. So what is the next problem that you say, man, I've been looking at this thing and, and I think I'm nearly there? Or are you there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's an education problem, and and where we're at right now as a company is we're really only scratching the surface of um, of things in general, and so you know, problem one is 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 probably the targeted one is that runners run like crap in America. Uh, you know, eighty plus percent of runners overstride to some degree. They they run with inefficient technique that's really hard on their body, and so teaching you know, a we sell a product that helps fix that. And then B, we need to deliver the education that helps fix it as well. And um, so that's that's kind of the targeted piece. But I think the bigger long play is that, you know, 90% of us by age 60 have deformed feet. Deformed feet. And yeah, you go look at the billion people on the planet that don't wear modern shoes and and 0% of them have deformed feet. Um, and do your our, feet our keep feet growing? I mean, what point do your feet stop growing? Uh, that's a good question. You know, most people's feet stop growing, you know, uh, as, as they stop growing in height. Um, but you know, there may be some, uh, a tiny little bit of growth that continues to occur, uh, over age and especially, you know, uh, ladies after pregnancy. Uh, and then again, as, as people get, uh, elderly, uh, but you know, what, what we generally don't see is a, a lot of length growing. 
but people who've worn traditional shoes that are are you know you may not even notice this but shoes are not shaped like feet put a natural foot down next to a shoe and those you know natural feet are fairly square shaped the way they come and most shoes are shaped like triangles or or pizza slices or like torpedoes yeah you, you, you've, you've been those, in my closet huh? you, you've seen the, the, they all looked at that way yeah the, those two shapes are not the same it's kind of like you know i've got a two-year-old right now and we're teaching her not to put the square shape in the triangle hole because that doesn't work yeah but we put our square shaped feet in triangle hold shoes all day long and wonder why why bad things happen and this is really the crux of like the next big issue that you're asking me is that you know our feet in America are jacked up. Like there's, they're a miserable, horrible problem. And everything you see in advertising is just a band aid. It's a short term, like, Oh, get these insoles or, you know, get this shoe. You know, it's all stuff that is going to make you feel good for a few days to a few weeks to maybe a few months. And they sure lucky. do sell a lot of band aids. My wife, I think she picks up a package once a week of band aids. Yeah, exactly. And so, but you know, they're, they're, that's not a long term solution. That's a short term feel good. And for us, like the big long-term play is to start to alleviate the foot problem, the chronic foot condition suffering we have in the modern world that is caused by shoes. Uh, and essentially just freeing people's feet to be in their barefoot natural position. And that doesn't mean you can't have cushioning and support. We sell a lot of shoes that are really cushy and really supportive, but those shoes still leave your foot in barefoot natural position with your toes spread and your heel and your, the ball of your foot level. And providing the education and the products and everything that goes along with that really is the next level of what we're trying to tackle um, and get to long term. It's just, you know, your feet don't have to hurt, you know, and and 62 percent of us think it's totally normal for our feet to hurt. And yet you go to the billion people on earth that don't wear shoes and none of them think it's normal. So how often do you recommend people buying a new pair of shoes? And I would say an ultra pair of shoes. How often should people look at buying shoes? It's very personal and very individual. We have some athletes that wear shoes between 1,500 and 2,000 miles, and we have other athletes that replace them every 200. Um, but my simple answer is when your foot has deformed the shoe enough that you feel like your foot is no longer in its natural position and things start to feel not right, then it's time for a new pair of shoes. A lot of people think, oh, I should buy a new pair of shoes when the, when the cushioning's gone because then it won't protect my knees. Well, cushioning doesn't protect your knees in the first place. And the reason things hurt when your shoe breaks down is because your foot has deformed that shoe into such a way that your foot is sitting in a very unnatural position at that point, and it's not able to do its thing. And so that's generally, for me, the answer there is just, you know, when you can feel your shoe just doesn't feel quite right anymore, when your foot is not sitting in that shoe the way it's supposed to, when you've broken down that shoe to the point that... Um, you know, you're, you're sitting in there awkwardly and it doesn't feel right, then, then it's time to get a new pair. Yeah. So uh, you were talking earlier about women's running shoes and how it's been, I believe, it, an important element in Ultra's development. Tell us about this phase of your business. Yeah, so right from the beginning, uh, when we first started making what we call foot-shaped shoes, running shoes that are shaped like feet, um, we we had to come up with the last, which are the foot forms that the shoe is built around because there were none, no foot-shaped athletic last. And so we started tracing people's feet that had never had any foot problems. So we'd ask people, you know, have your feet ever hurt? Have you ever had any chronic foot condition, whatever? And if they said no, we'd put their foot, you know, still wearing a sock down on a piece of paper and we'd trace it. And we took a composite of these tracings to make the shapes that our shoes are built around now. And uh, from the get-go, I noticed that women's feet didn't look like men's feet. They weren't the same shape. And as you really dive into this, I'm talking to our last maker at the time, uh, Vlad Shvoren, and he's like, oh yeah, woman's feet, you know, there's all these differences. And, I, and I'm thinking about things I learned in college. And it's like, oh yeah, women have like a higher instep and they have shorter arches and, you know, their fifth met is dropped more. And, you know, woman's feet are more V-shaped, men's feet are more two by four shaped. Like, yeah, woman's feet are a lot different. And unfortunately, like all athletic shoes for women, like 99.9%, they're the woman's shoes. They take a men's shoe and they shrink it and they pink it and they call it woman specific. And hmm. I just thought that was bull crap. And I, I said, Vlad, why do they do this? Like, you do this at Nike, right? And he's like, oh, everybody does it. I was like, why? He's like, well, because you can share all the men's and women's sizes that are the same. You can share those tools. And those tools are about $5,000 per half size. So on any given pair of shoes, there's about 10 sizes you can share. So that's about 50 grand you save 
every time you build a shoe, if you shrink it and pink it. And just like instead, that. Yeah. So everybody does it because if you actually think of that, you know, you're somebody like a big shoe company that makes, you know, a hundred shoes. Well, that's $5 million a year that you're going to save. Wow. That's a no brainer, right? Yeah. Um, Not a no brainer. So, so, um, that's, and, but I was like, well, enough is enough. Like we have to build what we call fit for her shoes, truly female specific shoes where the woman's shoes are built totally different from the ground up. They're different, you know, shape They're um, you know, women have less fat pads underneath their feet. So shoes, feel harder to women than they do to men. Yeah. They also have less body mass. So we make the women's shoes just as thick as the men's shoes. And then we make them softer to get them even approximating what a man is feeling in his shoe. And I think that, you know, these things are all really important, getting the fit to be very female specific. And then the underfoot experience needs to be very female specific as well. And so that's what we do with our fit for her platform. Wow. Now, how challenging is it to, to get into space for, for kids? Uh, really challenging. Um, and we're, we're coming out with two new kids shoes next year. So I guess we'll find out. We have one right now that we've had for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, it's, you know, it's a crowded market and that's a, it's a thing though. Most of these kids, most of us as adults, our foot problems started from shoes we wore from ages five to eight. You know, yeah, and right, frankly, right. kids kids really shouldn't wear shoes unless they're actually out running around. They isn't that isn't that something? Barefoot or moccasins, you know? Wow, yeah, I, I noticed with my kids, my my wife seems to always have to buy new shoes for them because their feet keep growing uh, quite fast. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe in the future we do a life's tough edition, and uh, we we put the proceeds uh, towards towards children in the world that that don't have shoes that require them because in the United States, unfortunately, you got to walk around with shoes. Yeah. Um, so a few more questions for you, and I don't know I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, for today, uh, w- when you see where you've been and you look where you're going, what kind of goals do you set as a company? Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is be true to who you are and, and what you've started with and like, don't go back on your ideals. Um, so for us, the mission is very much the same. And as, as we look in the future, I mean, you know, I started doing this uh, over 10 years ago. And, um, I, I don't think much has changed, you know, as, as successful as we are, as, as big of a brand as we are, and, you know, we're, we're the number one, uh, selling trail running shoe brand at running specialty, you know, in the United States, wow, for example, we kind of own the, yeah, we own the long distance through hiking market, you know, people that hike from Canada to Mexico, they overwhelmingly wear our shoes, um, and I, I just look at that and, but we're, we're still kind of like a a spec in the, in the greater landscape. And so really the, the end goal is kind of, that's a lot of humility, by the way, that you could become the top in one segment or one market and still say, well, we're, we're still, Oh, that's such humility. And it shows that the sky is the limit to where you guys can grow this. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, we really are nothing at the end of the day. We're just such a tiny piece of the overall shoe market. And you know, we, we just have, as we look into the future, it's, it's getting people to move more naturally, to run better, and then fixing this uh, chronic foot problem epidemic. Uh, and, you know, the education and the products that we provide to make those things happen is going to take a consistent focus for, you know, a long, long time. Yeah. And one of the things that we like to say on Life's Tough is that it takes a community. And, and you didn't go yeah. at this alone. You had a community around you. Tell me about the other, are, or are there any other founders? You had mentioned some names, but are there more founders or tell us about those founders? Yeah. So, you know, um, originally like the, the entire running store, uh, you know, my, my family's running store, like everyone was involved in this, uh, you know, very few of them wanted to take the risk, uh, as we got things going, I had a, a kid that worked at the store named Jacob. Um, and he was actually kind of the first person who was, involved in, you know, being on board with, uh, you know, starting a shoe company basically. And, uh, you know, he helped me out out a lot in the beginning and and he ended up, um, you know, not uh, continuing with us uh, for various reasons. But, uh, and, you know, I I talked about Jeremy and Brian and their, their side of the story. And and there's a common theme here. Most everybody who got involved with ultra, uh, and this is still mostly true came in because our shoes fixed something for them. So for Brian, it was his hamstring issues. And for Jeremy, it was his knee problems. For for Jacob, it was his calf problems. And 
when you are part of a product that fixes something for you, you become really passionate about it. And I, I kind of define, you know, what we do and what you're talking about with passion. Uh, we have this family of people that have been involved in Ultra, whether they're officially involved or not, that are really passionate about the brand and passionate about what we're accomplishing. And you're passionate about it because you see it help people. And when you see something help people and change people's lives, um, you know, you tend to want to do that more. And so, um, you know, Brian and Jeremy obviously went uh, through everything uh, with almost everything with me from, you know, almost the beginning. You know, I kind of did this stuff solo at the running store and, and modifying the shoes on my own early on. But once we, you know, got the company and formed it and, uh, you know, we're, we're an official company, they, they went through a lot. Um, and uh, and then, you know, there's you know, we have over 50 people that work for us. Oh, in that's the US that's alone. a lot of mouths to feed, by the way. 50 people. Yeah. That's a lot and of a lot of responsibility and accountability on you. Right. And that doesn't count. You know, that doesn't count sales reps and international and the 55 countries around the world that we sell in. That's incredible. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, just a lot of people really pulling their weight. And, and, you know, frankly, it's it's not easy because we're telling a story that is 100 percent contrary to we are the anti Nike. You know, we're we're telling a story that's the exact opposite of the story that Nike and Asics and Brooks and every other shoe company has been telling for 40 years. And we have to go in and nicely tell people like, hey, that stuff's wrong. And you got to do it one at a time. There's nothing more challenging than that. Yeah. And it's like this one conference that proves it. You know, it's it's just kind of brutal. And uh, you have to really believe in it and have some serious cojones. (laughs) You you really do. You you have to say we, we are committed to to igniting it and to re-educating one person yeah. at a time. So tell me about any strategic partners or relationships that your organizations have that has helped to get you to that next thing or, or to the next level. Do you have someone you're working with right now or a strategic partner of yours? Um, well, so there's, there's been a lot, you know, um, you know, first off, we, we did a deal in the early days with Icon Health and Fitness and we had them uh, acquire us to wipe out all that debt that I talked about earlier and to kind of provide some backend operational help. And, you know, they also own gold's gym. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah, not you, gold's you, gym, but they, they do gold's gym equipment. Gold's gym equipment. Um, I, well, that's a great but, partner to have, but they, they do pro form and Nordic track and, um, I fit and a lot of these really great fitness brands. And now they, um, they have you, I mean, you, and I know that you want to be humble about this, those are some incredible names. The fact that they, they looked at you and they looked at the passion and the enthusiasm, and for them it was contagious, tells everybody around the world that's going to listen to this show that you really had a dream and you found a way to make it come true. So final question for you. Who's the yeah. toughest person that you know? Who's the toughest person in your life? The one that would not allow you to give up and say, all right, I guess it was just an idea. Who would that person be? Ooh. Could be a couple you know, people. I, I, I got to give props to uh, our first investor, Joe Morton, who started this company called Zango. And he, he built that company from from nothing to a billion dollars. Wow. So Joe and, Morgan. Uh, Morton. Morton. Yeah. And he... He uh, he just mentored us every step of the way. We, you know, we would have we would have screwed up and and lynched ourselves fifty times over if mm. it weren't for Joe. Um, but I would say, you know, it it, it it could be Jeremy, it could be Brian, and it, it very much could be my dad. Um, uh, all three of those people are just uh, ridiculously tough individuals. And I think I think when you do something really really hard like this. Um, you have to have those people. Wow. So final and thoughts, I'm very grateful for them. final thoughts you, you want to put out? Uh, final words, can, final words, final words. Uh, what do you know, want to send off to those people that are going to be ignited to go get a pair of shoes, alter shoes and go on their journey? Tell them how do they start? You know, start slow, one step at a time. And, you know, we have a hashtag zero limits. And I really believe uh, in that, you know, that we really can do anything we set our minds to. Uh, But like, you know, like I said earlier, like, think about your feet, think about, you know, what you're putting your feet into what you wear on an all day, everyday basis is probably even more important than what you run in. Uh, And, 
you got to fix the foundation of your body before you can fix everything else. And then think about your technique. Learn how to protect your body. Learn how to do things right. Um, I've got a lot of resources on my website at goldenharper.net um, for this kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, at the end of the day, life is bigger than shoes. And sometimes I have to tell myself that it's, you know, they're they're just shoes. Uh, just shoes. And, and they're great shoes and they change people's lives and, and, and they make the world a better place. But at the end of the day, they are just shoes. And it's a it's a first world problem. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is that we realize that life is bigger than that. People have real problems uh, like, you know. This is life's tough. So life's um, tough, and and it's true. You know, um, there's just there's bigger problems out there, and to get outside yourself, I, I think we live in a modern world where people don't talk to each other, and it's sometimes people think it's weird when you talk to a stranger, and you know, you look at these studies of of uh, these cities that have like, you know, really they they live to really old age despite bad dietary habits and all this thing, and the only thing they can find common about these people is they they have community and they live close together and they go to church together and they you know you might have three generations in one household and and all this stuff and i just think there's something to be said for reaching out to you know get off your phone get off your computer go out into the real world and engage with people and and serve you know at the end of the day i think getting outside of ourselves and and helping other people is is what makes life worth living and well, what makes life great. And well, when things well, suck, a message. when your life sucks, the best thing you can do is go help someone else. And you'll be amazed how much it makes your life better. Well said, Golden Harper. Well, that uh, wraps it up with Golden. And life's tough. But Joe Morton, Jeremy, Brian, and Golden's dad is tougher. Thanks for joining us, Golden. Amen. Thanks a lot. So that wraps up our show for this evening. Thanks again to Golden Harper for making this another outstanding episode of our Life's Tough podcast. The conversation has been fascinating. And thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant and fastest growing shows around. Also, special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough chief writer and my Sherpa, as well as our producer, John Miller. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story is just as devastating as any other. I ask you to use your story to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend their situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestuff.com and be sure to join us every week. Same time for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. We'd like to close out with a new sponsor. You already know life is tough and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com to learn how Carl can help you get tough on business. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Thanks for listening and have a great week. So for the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Plantelt signing off. Remember, life's tough. You can be tougher.